studies. She's actually been leaving the conference to go walk her dog, which her dog is very I thankful for. I let the dog out if you were at the worst song panel <laughs> earlier. I did. Yeah. Uh, she's, <laughs> <was> the <laughs> she's the author of Real Folks, Race and Genre in the Great Depression, and she's working on a book about literary ethnographies of the color line in the mid-20th century. She's also a collaborator with the Women Who Rock Research and Digital Archive Project, and her, t- her paper today is called Memphis Minis Jukebox Blues. So, thank you. An alternative title might be It Might Get Loud, the prequel. <laughs> with characteristic certainty, Zora Neale Hurston put it this way. Musically speaking, the juke is the most important place in America, for in its smelly, shoddy confines has been the secular music known as blues, and on blues has been founded jazz. The singing and playing in the true Negro style is called juking. The songs grow by incremental repetitions as they travel from mouth to mouth and juke to juke for years before they reach outside ears, close quote. Juke joints begat the blues, and the blues begat jazz, traveling from the inside ears of the isolated backwoods to the outside ears of the city, the very sound of the great migration. This is a story of transformation through transmission and repetition, shaded with a tinge of nostalgia for an original pure blues. You can hear the beginnings of the romance of juke joints as ground zero for collectors' and fans' obsessions with a real blues that was, is, ever unattainable, first in the form of live performances and then in the form of 78s. A few years later, the authors of the famed Mississippi Delta study of 1941, including Alan Lomax and John Wark III, would construct a rather different account. They saw the juke joint as a harbinger of cosmopolitan modernity, a manifestation of the highway culture that was transforming the South. Describing Clarksdale, Mississippi as a trade and culture center, they explained how, quote, the development of the highway, the coming of the radio, the automobile, the movie theater, and the juke joints furthered the contact opportunity for Negroes on the plantation. Such an observation led one field worker to conclude, quote, with an increased participation in the urban way of life, the element of loneliness creeps into the plantation man's moods, and the blues are the natural expressions of the urbanized Negro. In assessing the significance of the juke joint to the blues, Hurston looks back while the Delta collectors look forward, a schism both temporal and romantic in and out of time. Taken together, they show how the blues moves within an increasingly connected modern southern geography of juke joints, amplified through technologies of sound such as the guitar and later the jukebox. That Hurston's account of the juke joint in the early 30s would emphasize live performance is not necessarily surprising. Ten years later, such a depiction would have been flat-out anachronistic. In 1933, on the eve of Prohibition's repeal, there were reportedly 20,000 jukeboxes in America. By, late th- the, by the late 30s, there were more, than, more like 400,000 jukeboxes, over half of them located in the South. In their field work in the early 40s, the Delta collectors had the forethought to not only interview interview and record local performers, but to also note the contents of the jukebox. Here, jukeboxes are functioning as collections of the commercial and popular. If the juke joint was the cradle of the blues, that's Hurston's term, in an odd way, it was also the birthplace of the jukebox. The first electrically amplified multi-selection phonograph was released in 1927 by the Automatic Music Instrument Company, soon to be followed by similar models from Seberg, Wurlitzer, and Rockola. 
In the late 1920s, early jukeboxes were found in juke joints, barrel houses, and clubs that catered primarily to black audiences who wanted to hear the latest race records but could not afford home phonograph players and could not find the blues or hillbilly music, for that matter, on the segregated, classed-up, and censored airwaves of early radio. During Prohibition, Harlem contained the most jukeboxes of any East Coast region. When record sales dropped precipitously during the, the Depression, Bessie Smith was rumored to have kept Columbia Records afloat. Her records continued to sell in the phonograph and jukebox market. Radio might have been free, but devoted listeners had rarely been able to rely on the radio as a source for hearing Smith's music, other than the occasional broadcast of a live performance. In some sense, the social dynamics of segregation that shaped the emergence of the juke joint also then drove the popularity of the jukebox. However, the automated music industry, the jukebox industry, steadfastly refused the associ sorry, association of its product with juke joints on the grounds that the name had cheap, low-down, read black connotations. Given this history, even when the industry attempted to brand the mach machines as music vendors and supplant the southern black working class meanings of juke with a faux Viennese origin and an old English and Scottish etymology to jump like a bird, the name still stuck. For black musicians in particular, the jukebox served as an alternative public medium, providing them with their largest audiences and widest exposure. The blues was automating. Memphis Minnie recorded some of her biggest hits for jukeboxes, songs such as Me and My Chauffeur Man and Nothing and Rambling. Her records were lauded in Billboard for bringing, quote, coinage to the race locations, quote, for making money for jukeboxes. At the same time, her repertoire, based on set lists, included a broad range of popular hits beyond her recordings, such as Summertime and the Woody Woodpecker song. If the jukebox was automating the blues, blues musicians like Minnie were becoming mechanical age songsters. That's Francis Davis's phrase. To, do, to this day, Memphis Minnie is re remembered for being a rare woman in country blues, a genre dominated by men, yet her legacy is not reducible to this account alone. Her technological innovations tell us something more complex about blues modernity than the, than the collectors perhaps understood. Like just about every other famous blues musician from the period, Memphis Minnie both supports and confounds the shaping myths of the blues. Born in the Delta, called to Memphis, then New York, then Chicago, Hers was an itinerant life, lived between cities and labels, musical and romantic partners, the music filling the airwaves and the spaces between. She was a woman performer who wrote her own music. She was the second most recorded blues woman in her era, recording over 200 songs, second only to Bessie Smith. And she made a living at it until she could no longer perform in the early 1960s. Minnie always played lead, her intricate fing finger picking working on top of her partner's counterpoint in the Memphis style. To be her husband, she had at least two, possibly three. You had to be a mighty fine rhythm guitarist. By some counts, a perfectionist and a taskmaster, she broke sonic barriers. In the lore, she was a fighter. Guitarist Johnny Shines describes, any men fool with her, she'd go for them right away. She didn't take no foolishness off them. Guitar, pocket knife, pistol, anything she got her hand on, she'd use it. <laughs> she gambled and drank. She wore money, a bracelet of silver dollars minted the year she was born. She rolled up to shows in luxury cars, and she sported guitars of the newest make. In Minnie's three decades-long career, she played the country blues of the Delta, bringing it north only to transform it into the post-war Chicago sound. In the words of guitarist Willie Moore, she was a guitar king. She had swagger. 
Born Lizzie Douglas in Algiers, Louisiana in 1897, she was the eldest of 13 kids, her family moving to Walls, Mississippi, just outside of Memphis when she was still a child. She received her first guitar when she was eight and in her teens would regularly run away to Beale Street to busk as Kid Douglas. Locally, she played house parties, fish fries, and juke joints, and she also traveled the South playing tent shows with the Ringling Brothers Circus. The vaudeville circuit paid off. James Watt of the, of the Blues Rockers describes, quote, she was a showman all the way. She'd stand, stand up out of that chair, she'd take that guitar and put it all across her head and everywhere, you know. She, it was at a Beale Street barbershop that a scout for Columbia discovered the kid with her duet partner, Joe McCoy. They recorded together as Memphis Minnie and Kansas Joe McCoy in 1929, traveling to New York to cut When the Levee Breaks, along with their first version of Bumblebee. Newly flushed, they bought national steel-bodied guitars that were just marketed in 1929, resonator guitars three to five times as loud as any made of wood, able to withstand the rigors of the tent shows, one instance of many, that revealed Minnie's turn toward innovation and amplification. So I wanted to play you a bit of Crazy Crying Blues, partially because it's one of my favorites by her, and then also you can hear the resonator guitar it's kind of chimey sound working with her moaning chorus, and it's worth noting that the strings on a resonator were stiff, so her finger-picking is all the more impressive. After recording with all three of the major race series labels, Minnie's partnership with Joe ended around 1935. She was getting first billing, making solo recordings, and also trying out ensemble-based rhythm-heavy arrangements under the production of Lester Melrose of Bluebird Records, creating songs suitable for the blatant acoustics of the jukebox's greater volume and fidelity. In the late 30s, Minnie would marry another guitarist, Ernest Little Son Joe Lawler, her partner for the next 23 years. Though she toured often, especially in the South, she was well-known in the Chicago scene, hosting legendary Blue Monday parties at Ruby Lee Gatewood's Tavern, winning cutting contests, and performing in the most crowded nightclubs and bars on the South Side. 
On New Year's Eve of 1942, poet Langston Hughes heard Memphis Minnie play at the 230 Club in th Chicago. And really, when you hear that Langston Hughes and Memphis Minnie are in the same club, you have to ask who else is there, right? <laughs> um, she performs on a chair atop an icebox. Astonishingly, thrillingly, she plays electric guitar a year even before Muddy. Well, not the first to go electric, she was certainly among a handful of innovators at the time, T-Bone Walker in L.A., her, fr her friend Big Bill Brunzi in Chicago. She exploits the technologies of her moment, courtesy of GE, electrifying the rural Delta style and roughing up the smooth bluebird sound. In Hughes' written account of her performance, A Trace of the Ephemeral, we hear Memphis Minnie going electric to compete with, augment, and perhaps evade her commercial recorded self. In Hughes' words, her playing is, quote, made harder and stronger by scientific sound, close quote. And I'm going to read a big block quote. This is just a gorgeous review. Her right hand with the dice ring in it picks out the tune, throbs out the rhythm, beats out the blues. Then through the smoke and racket of the noisy Chicago bar float Louisiana bayous, muddy old swamps, Mississippi dust and sun, cotton fields, lonesome roads, train whistles in the night, mosquitoes at dawn, and the rural free delivery that never brings the right letter. Big ruffled Delta cities float in the smoke too, also border cities, northern cities, relief, WPA, Muscle Shoals, the Jukes. The hand with the dice ring picks out music like this. It was last year, 1941, that the war broke out, wasn't it? It was 1939 and 1935 and 1932 and 1928 and the years that you don't remember when your clothes got shabby and the insurance relapsed. Now it's 1942 and different. Folks have jobs, money circulating again. Relatives are in the army with big insurances if they die. Memphis Minnie, at year's end, picks out those nuances and tunes them into the strings of her guitar, weaves them into runs and trills and deep, steady chords that come through the amplifiers like the Negro heartbeats mixed with iron and steel, close quote. Hughes listens to Memphis Minnie's performance as a live recording of fleeting memories. Minnie's scientific sound rehearses Hurston's account of the juke joint and the Delta Collectors, too, as she beats out the blues to paraphrase Daphne Brooks, she pounds out the beat of overlooked histories through her body. Her amplification defies origin stories that insist either on rural pasts or only on urban futures. Perhaps she sings her recent jukebox hits, and I wanted to just play part of one here for you here um, in my girlish days. So here's Minnie, north of 40, reflecting on her girlish days. 
1917. She's played her hand with some man. Her parents are shamed, and she's tailing it out of town. Only the flaunt from the present in that final lyric. All my playmates is not surprised. I had to travel before I got wise. I found out better, and I still got my girlish ways. No disavowal here. This is grown folks' talk when girlish become, becomes grown. Back to the club. No doubt Minnie plays electric to override the noise of the crowd, but we might also imagine that she plugs in to play louder than the jukebox, the jukebox she has used to great effect in promoting her career, the machine that likely first broadcast her music to the audience she now plays for. Hughes writes, her voice, the words, the melody get lost under sheer noise, leaving only the rhythm to come through clear. Close quote. The lower frequencies constitute the heartbeat of her music, grounding the noise in history and the creative persistence of black life. Hughes contrasts Muse perform sorry, Minnie's performance with the unsmiling white men who run the club, ringing up sales on the cash register, men who pointedly do not move in time with her music, but still profit from the partial inclusion of black people into the wartime economy. Quote, Memphis Minnie's music is harder than the coins that roll across the counter. Hughes asked rhetorically, does that mean that she understands, or is it just science that makes the guitar strings so hard and loud? Close quote. As the club owners count their money, she conveys something harder within and in excess of this economy. Her performance sounds an alternative temporality of black modernity, one that moves forward by a critical remembrance of things past but in a different technological register. Her playing amplifies the essential logic of recording itself, the preservation of a past performance that plays now and gestures toward the future, fiercely, insi fiercely, insistently calling up what Eric Davis describes as, quote, a new ghost world of sound, close quote. And indeed, if the conception of recording changes in the 1930s from a notion of pres preserving an event to the creation of calculated effects, Minnie brings this calculation to her live performance. Sonically, this is how she makes meaning of past and present. This is her scientific sound. Harder, louder, this is the pleasure in her play. Now, I want to leave you with a coda, which pretty much opens up a whole new paper topic, <laughs> but I just can't resist because it's pop conference. <laughs> so, <laughs> Hughes states, now it's 1942. Jukeboxes were shipped to U.S. military bases globally where they played American pop songs as the sound of democracy and imperialism. And what would prove to be a cheap assist in the U.S. State Department's imminent Cold War cultural campaign. I cannot tell if Memphis Minnie's music made it abroad. If you were to root around in the Office of War Information Photographic Archive for images of jukeboxes, you might stumble across this photo. Or this. Wurlitzer factories became weapons plants. The radio transmitter of the record changer in the jukebox transformed in the, into the proximity or variable time fuse, leading to more accurate bomb detonation. The discovery touted as one of the top-ranking scientific achievements of the war. While Walter Benjamin's angel of history is always upon us, there is no document of civilization which is not at the same time a document of barbarism. We might tune Memphis Minnie's guitar strings to hear, as Hughes does, the complex time of the double V, victory against Jim Crow at home and victory against fascism abroad, and with that, the conscription of African Americans to a kind of partial martial citizenship. 
in the reverberation of her scientific sound as it brushes history against the grain, we might hear, too, the variable time of jukeboxes as they detonate across the European and Pacific theaters. As, as Benjamin observes, the storm is what we call progress. Thank you. Thank you.